Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And I want to begin this morning by sharing two quick stories that made headlines over the summer, albeit for much different reasons and at much different levels. But the first was back in the days following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, and people would fill the streets to pay respects to his memorial, to protest the injustice of not only this one event, but as we all know, uh, the, the, the protests of the, just, uh, the, the greater narrative and problem of racial injustice in our country. Um, how the streets were filled with um, re- really um, people of every skin color and, and every kind of age demographic, long into the night, long days, long nights. Well, at sunrise each morning in the days following his death, when the streets were basically empty, except for a group of people who showed up each day at sunrise with shovels, trash bags, and other cleaning supplies. And after a while, somebody asked this group, hey, who, who are you guys? What, what are you doing? And it turns out that it was a group from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis who committed to help clean the streets every morning so that they would be, um, the streets would be ready for people who would come later on that day to, again, pay respects to George Floyd Memorial and then peacefully protest. And so when somebody followed up and kind of put these two things together, he said, what are you doing? What's a church group doing here? Why are you guys here? One of the members said this, quote, We want to help bless the city. Give the city hope. Give the city some faith. And show the city some love. Later, another news outlet um, found a a 30-year-old woman named Juliana uh, who was part of this group and just showing up in the morning and was asked, um, again, what, why are you here? Why are you part of this? And, and she said this, quote, George Floyd's death was heartbreaking. And as much as I'd love to show my support, I didn't know how. And this is what I know how to do. We want to give our community a little bit of a rise and provide hope that things are going to get better. And what began as a relatively small group at first increased to hundreds of volunteers from around the city who joined the members of Bethlehem Baptist Church to clean up the streets every morning. It's the first story. The second story was just from this past week, where the president of the most well-known Christian university in the nation who recently was actually put on leave because of an Instagram post that was laced with sexual innuendos. This priest was exposed, this president, excuse me, was exposed along with his wife for the two of them having this long-term affair with a 20-year-old man at the time that they allegedly recruited and groomed and exploited sexually. And the school that the president presides over actually has always been well known for having their students sign a document called the Code of Honor where this president would stand in the pulpit every semester and challenge the students to abide by the code of honor and pursue holiness in all areas of life. My guess is that you heard far more about the story from this past week than you did about the church group following the death of George Floyd. Every major media outlet carried the story. His name was actually trending number one on Twitter for most of a Monday and even beyond that this past week. And both stories, for different reasons, 
at different levels, reflect upon the person and work of Jesus Christ and the people who follow him. Because the faith of those involved, the association with Christian institutions were very clearly laid out in the storylines. The former in a way that is glorifying to God and the latter in a way that is denigrating to God. But when Jesus commissioned his disciples in Acts chapter 1, before ascending to the Father, he said the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And ever since that moment 2,000 years ago, to right now, today, in 2020, the question is not whether Christians and churches will be witnesses to a watching world. The question is, what kind of witnesses will we be? Well, we're in the third week of our four-week series on the vision of Grace Church called Reset. And, and among the things that we reset as a church is actually the communication of our vision, which I had rolled out last week Vision of Grace Church is glorifying God by making disciples who know Jesus and make him known. The first week of our series, we saw out of Ephesians 4 that we are one body formed by one spirit with one father. And then last week, week two, we unpacked what it meant to make disciples who know Jesus. What does that mean? What's underneath that? And we defined knowing Jesus again out of Ephesians 4 by disciples who are Christ-centered who discern truth, who love one another, and who, in turn, make disciples. And now we're going to spend the final two weeks unpacking the final phrase, making disciples who make him known. Here's why we're going to take two weeks. Because I think there are two broad ways that the church can make Christ known. The first is by the way we live. The second is by the words we say. And, and both are vital. Both are very much connected in many ways, but they are distinct. Um, both are spirit-driven means through which God is going to make his name known through his people. But before people in the world will listen to what the church has to say, they will observe what the church is committed to do. And so we're going to begin this morning in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, before we're going, to, uh, we're, we're going to go through Matthew chapter 5 before jumping to 1 Peter chapter 2 because I want to show you the connection between those two passages. Uh, the connection between some of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 and then, uh, and then Peter's exhortation to the churches he is writing to because he was there when Jesus was teaching in Matthew chapter 5. Hopefully it will make sense as we go. Um, but Matthew 5 uh, is the beginning of the famous Sermon on the Mount. It's the most famous and extensive of Jesus' teaching that is recorded in the Bible. Um, if there was a YouTube in the first century, Sermon on the Mount would have the most views and most shares of all Jesus' teaching. Okay, It is the most prominent, the most important in a lot of ways because in this sermon, Jesus teaches what it means to be a citizen in Christ's kingdom. What's it mean? to be a follower of Christ, a citizen in Christ's kingdom. What's that look like? We're just going to read a portion of it that is near the beginning of the sermon. It's Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Follow along. 
You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. These are um, very well-known verses in the Bible, certainly amongst the most well-known in the Sermon on the Mount. If you grew up in the church, uh, you learned about um, how God's people are salt and light. That was kind of one of the first things that you probably remember and think about, and, and you probably even sang songs about it, right? Like, you know the songs, right? Like, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, hide it under a basket. No! I'm gonna let it shine. You know I've been preaching to a camera for six months when I start singing, because I will never do that when people are around and I'm going a little crazy, but we'll keep it. The meaning is this. Salt was used primarily as a preservative in the first century. And God causes people to be filled with the Spirit and to serve as a preservative in the world against moral decay. It certainly means more than that, but it's kind of base level. That's, that's the main point. And likewise, God calls the church to be light, a light that penetrates the darkness of the world around it. Um, again, well-known verses. They're, they're kind of feel-good verses. Again, there's kind of kid songs that we get put around it. But here's the thing. We rarely hear the verses that come right before it. And the reason is because probably in your Bible, like mine, there is a break between verses 12 and 13. There's a heading called salt and light. But, but when Matthew wrote this, certainly when Jesus preached it, there was no break. Verse 13 flows from verse to, uh, verses 11 and 12. So what do those verses say? Let's see. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then you are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Here's the point. The call on our lives to make the name of Christ known will not always and often will not be the most popular stance to have. If our goal as a church is to have a mission that's going to be the most well-received by the world around us, man, the church ain't it. That's what you want your mission to be. It ain't going to be the mission of the church. In fact, shortly before Jesus was crucified, in his final teaching, uh, he said clearly to his disciples, brothers, the world will hate you because it hated me. And the reason is that the gospel, by its very nature, is an offense to the world because the gospel says at its core that we are powerless to save ourselves. We can't just follow our heart and do what's best for me because in a fallen world that is ravaged by sin, following our heart is the problem, not the solution. 
And that doesn't preach well in first century Palestine, and it certainly doesn't preach well in 2020 America. And the good news of the gospel is good only in so much that we first have the eyes to see the bad news. That due to sin, that we can't blame others for our sin, our hearts, because of that we are separated from Christ and and are deserving of judgment. So the gospel is an offense, and certainly for a people that are rally around and are formed by the gospel is going to be an offense to the worlds around it and the kingdoms around it because we are citizens of another kingdom. And here's kind of the key with that. Here's kind of the next step with that. And here's why I think oftentimes the church can kind of fall off the tracks. Here's what we need to understand. Brothers and sisters, that's okay. We don't need to fight back. We don't need to revile back. We don't need to utter evil against them. In fact, we don't even need to grumble or complain about that. Or we don't need to change our ways so that we are accepted by the world. But Jesus says we can even rejoice in the midst of difficult circumstances and do good in the face of evil. And look what happens when that is the response of the people of God. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You understand the context of that? The they in that verse is not just a neutral world as happens to be observing. It's the very people who were doing the persecuting. For when they see the church act as the light and give glory to our Father. In the shadow of persecution, salt and light shine all the more. And so we can kind of see the flow there. Jesus is saying, guys, your doing flows from your being. You see that, right? You are salt of the earth, so act salty. You are the light of the world, so let your light shine before others Our doing flows from our being. Knowing Jesus and making Him known flows from being a body formed by God. A body of believers formed by the Spirit of God. He doesn't say, hey guys, if you act this way, you will become salt. Or if you act this way, then you will shine as light. He's saying, by God's grace, that is what you are. You are salt. You are light. And so the world needs the church to be different because we are different. And I find the biggest danger in the church today, the biggest danger I feel and pull my own heart is is when knowing information about God does not lead to transformation for the glory of God. That when that happens, when we just kind of know the things that are supposed to be known, but that knowledge doesn't lead to transformation then the church begins to look just like the world it's trying to reach. And that's a problem. Because darkness doesn't penetrate darkness. Only light does. So going back to the beginning, if we are all witnesses, and the question is how do we as a church act as good witnesses to the, to the glory of God before a watching world? How do we live as salty salt? And how do we live as bright lights? 
Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Perhaps some of you have known about this connection between Matthew 5 and 1 Peter 2. But again, Peter, who was there to hear Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, now a generation later is, is using it to uh, apply it to a local church that he's writing to. And so let's read um, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We want to answer the question, how does the church make Christ known to a world who doesn't know him? How do we do that? This passage gives us five ways. Number one, by our unity. By our unity. You see that Peter distinguishes the church from the world. He contrasts the church from the world, not first by what they do, but by who they are. Just as we saw in Matthew 5 when Jesus said, first, you are salt and you are light, so Peter says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He finds four different ways to say the same exact thing. You can almost feel his excitement. Like he's just trying to, in writing this letter, just impart this to the people of God. This is who you are. And in all four cases, it displays that we are not to credit for the unity of our belief. That we are not to be given any credit for the purpose and nature of the church. God is. At Grace Church, we didn't become a single race of citizens in God's kingdom. God did that. We didn't become a holy nation or people for his own possession. God did that by his grace. I mean, for goodness sake, our, our name is Grace Church. Every time we even think about our church and our name, that name, it's because of His grace that we are who we are. Not our strategy, not our vision statement, not anything else that we do here. It's primarily and foundationally Him, His work. And who we are by nature, as God designed it, becomes noticeable to the world. And here's why I think this is so important, because when we think about making Christ known, we often think about evangelism or, or being a witness into the world in, in that way. And we think, it, we think usually solely just in, in interactions that we have with the world. But I think the biblical form of outreach or evangelism or whatever word you want to put there, that it begins with how we treat, interact with, 
and build up one another in the church. Let me show you two, two quick examples of this. Uh, first, in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 46. Again, a very familiar set of verses that describe the fellowship of believers in that real early church in the city of Jerusalem and how they had all things in common. They were providing for one another. They were spending all this time together. They were breaking bread, eating together. And then after explaining all those interactions with the, one another, it says this in verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There was no description of an evangelism program. There was no outreach event. It was their love for one another and their unity with one another as a people set apart by God's possession that that very work is what served as a witness that people saw and wanted to be a part of. Saw and that were drawn to. Saw and that led them to Christ. And then in John 13, 35, Jesus says this, clear as day, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When it comes to making the name of Christ known, it includes your words and interactions with the world, but it begins with your love for other Christians. Do you want, do you want to reach the world for Christ? Then start by loving the church. That's number one, by our unity. Number two, by our worship. Back half of verse nine. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That proclamation of him who brought us from death to life is not, again, primarily evangelism. It's not primarily uh, a proclamation to unbelievers, but it's proclamation to fellow believers in worship. That a very central aspect of our lives is spent in worship. Not out of obligation, not in order to pay God back, but out of a desire to make much of Him, to glorify His name, and to celebrate the fact that God has brought us from darkness to light. Which again becomes noticeable. You know why? You know what's true about us? People care about what other people care about. Meaning that what you worship is noticeable to others around you. When people are passionate about something, it attracts eyeballs, even if they're not passionate about the same thing, but they notice. Because everyone worships. Everyone's been innately designed by God to worship. And everybody, over time, makes known the God in their life. Either consciously or subconsciously. Every single person in this world lets those around them know what matters most to them based on what takes up the most of their time, their passions, their energy towards being put in it. Everyone has a God. 
And it's okay, and it can be even good to be passionate about things or to have really passionate goals in this world in so much that those passions in some way serve the most foundational passion to glorify God in all that we do. So, man, um, be the best athlete you can be. Do the best work you can. Pour yourself into parenting, into friendships, into goals you set yourself with music or theater or running or whatever, but ensure that the baseline motivation under it all is not to glorify self, but to glorify God. And so as a church, our worship, both corporate and individual, should be clear and evident to those who are looking on and should sense something different in our worship that contrasts it from the worship of the world around us. Like there ought to be a certain kind of foreignness to it, right? Like a a strangeness that that we care so much about um, gathering together to worship, that we actually prioritize, kind of shape our weekly schedules around the fact that we want to ensure that we are going to worship with our fellow brothers, sisters in Christ. And think about it. What we do when we gather to worship, it's a little strange, Think, again, non-COVID world. Every week, at the same time, in the same place, the same people go get into a room. And they stand and they sing to an invisible God. And they collectively confess sin and pray to an invisible God. And then one person stands up and speaks about a passage in a book written thousands of years ago. And then we stand and we sing some more to the invisible God. And then we finish by having a piece of cracker and some juice, which is supposedly the physical reminder of that invisible God who laid down his life for us and gave us new life in him by faith. Is that really what we do here each and every week? Yup. And you know what? We'll be back next time, certainly Uh, as soon as we can. And again, non-COVID world, no matter what, we'll be back next week unless the Lord returns first. And these routines and these practices, our proclamation of the excellencies of Him who brought us from darkness to light, make known the name of Christ to all who see and know us. That's number two, by our worship. Let's keep going by uh, number three, by our mercy. By our mercy. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, uh, Francis Park, our newest staff member serving as our youth director, gave uh, the devotional at our staff meeting this past uh, week. And he based it on Tim Keller's book called The Generous Justice. And Francis shared in his devotional how the Old Testament speaks of really two forms of justice. There's kind of two Hebrew words. The first is the word that means punishment, right? To to carry out just justice on those who do wrong. But the second, and often overlooked, is a word that means to carry out righteousness and to seek good in others. 
And it's used all over the place in the Old Testament, most famously in Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And so here, here's the connection that, that again, I mean, I'm, I'm like writing down notes in our staff devotional as Francis has given this. I, I read the book years ago, but it's like, I feel like I forgot everything. And Francis is just kind of laying this out the week that I'm preparing for this sermon and makes the connection that we as the people of God are justified because that first use of justice was put on Christ on our behalf, that he took the punishment for our sin so that we, as redeemed men and women, are now called to carry out and equipped to carry out the second kind of justice, to seek and do good wherever we can. Keller says this, I'll quote this excerpt from the book. If a person has grasped the meaning of God's grace in his heart, he will do justice. If he doesn't live justly, then he may say with his lips that he's grateful for God's grace, but in his heart he is far from him. If he doesn't care about the poor, it reveals that at best he doesn't understand the grace he has experienced. And at worst, he has not really encountered the saving mercy of God. Grace should make you just. The call on the church to pursue biblical justice is a direct outflow and implication of the gospel itself. And so local churches are like embassies of the kingdom of God who are sprinkled across every nation of the world, meant to represent the interests of our sovereign king, which includes showing mercy, um, both intentionally planned out and spontaneously when the opportunity arises. And unfortunately, and I don't really understand why, but this is a topic of hot controversy in the church today. And it's been exposed more as a political thing than anything else, where, where you have kind of one camp of people saying that, hey, uh, certain areas of justice or social justice, whatever kind of word you want to put in there, it shouldn't be the church's business. We should just be about the gospel. Just preach the gospel. You get caught up in that and you'll distort and get away from the gospel. Or there's a mindset that says uh, that there's only certain kinds of justice that the people of God should be pursuing. So that if you do care about racial reconciliation or you do care about pushing back and speaking up against systemic racism, that's, that's seen as liberal. And, and if you do seek to advocate for the unborn, that's just purely seen as conservative. And at the end of the day, oftentimes it's political convictions that determine the actions of churches more so than biblical convictions. But biblical justice is not optional in the Bible. And it's a direct implication of the gospel for the people of God. So, so back to the staff meeting in Francis. Uh, again, just kind of bring clarity to some of this. I'm just kind of writing down, writing down. But, but it kind of lands the plane with this, that the church is called to pursue biblical justice Certainly in, in the Bible, it's in the, areas, uh, in, um, uh, in the area of, of widows and orphan, orphans and the poor and the refugees. And it's not a matter of this is what we should do, but this is what we get to do. That it's a joy and the privilege 
to be the body of Christ, with Christ as the head, to step into these spaces with our money, with our time, with our prayer, with our talents. Because in doing so, we make known to the world the sovereign King who we represent. If we want to seriously make Christ known, we ought to show mercy as we've received mercy. That's number three. Number four, by our abstentions. If you're wondering at home, yes, abstentions is a word, and it's probably the first time I've ever used it. But verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. In our world today, hear me with this, in our world today, it will often be what we don't do more than what we do that will make Christ known. That word in verse 11, passions, is the same Greek word from which we also get the word lusts or desires. And it can, can have either a positive or a negative connotation based on its context, right? We even saw earlier, it's good to have passions. It can be good, but in this connotation, it's shown it also could be negative. It could be passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So Peter says, abstain, abstain, stay away from it. Don't make room for it. Don't get comfortable and feel at home with the passions of the flesh. First of all, because they destroy your soul. It's like a flesh-eating bacteria. It will spread and those passions will never be satisfied. And you'll never be filled with joy as long as you indulge in them. This is why, and I know from experience in my own Christian walk, that the Christian who is steeped in habitual sin is the most miserable person there is. Because they're not walking in the peace and joy of obedience that the Spirit empowers them to do. And they can't even enjoy sin like the world does because the Spirit is convicting them and they know it's wrong. So abstain from those passions that do nothing to edify and only seek to destroy. As John Owen famously said, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. But in context here, the other reason to abstain from fleshly passions is that by our abstentions, we will make known the person and work of Jesus Christ who freed us from those passions. And if there's one thing that describes our world today, certainly in an area, an affluent area like we do, if there's a word that kind of describes us, it's indulgence. No filters. No holding back. If it feels good, it must be right. Dial it up to 10 every time. And we're just a mixture of chemical desires, and we'll only be happy if we just say yes to everything and that, that, that might seem right to us. And, and that's kind of just the doctrine of this world. Go for it. Make it happen. Make yourself happy. Think of yourself first. So church, as we live in and amongst this world, I can guarantee people will notice what you don't do far before they observe the things that you do. And we've got to be honest, this, this is hard, right? Like this is, there's a reason why Paul, like Peter is saying this, because, because it's hard to do. As much as, um, as, people, as much as we're a culture, we want to be noticed. It's also true that we don't want to be noticed for not doing the things that everybody else is doing. 
We don't want to be noticed for not watching the things that everybody else watches or not spending the money on the things everyone else is or not needing the latest and greatest fill-in-the-blank. Don't contribute to those social media posts. Don't indulge in that gossip or give in to the grumbling when every little thing goes wrong. Don't feel like you've got to go with the crowd, that happiness is where the crowd is. Church, in not doing many of these things, Not only will your soul be healthier, but the world will benefit from what they don't see in us. Lastly, but not least, number five, by our honor. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This final point is in some ways a combination of points three and four. That honorable conduct is both by doing good, like seeking justice and mercy, and abstaining from evil. And when we are pursuing these things and abstaining from these things, not only us as individuals, but together as a church, we will make known the name of Christ by our honor. And we know at Grace, we are you know, a reformational church, meaning that we stand on the shoulders of those uh, Protestants that came before us over the last 500 years. And we are very clear here that we are saved by Christ alone, by faith alone. But not by faith that is alone. The way we live our lives matters. We want to see lives in our church that increasingly point to the transforming power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and not merely to the informational facts and doctrines that people need to know. And in doing this, we're not seeking to win the approval of the world. Because just as in Matthew chapter 5, we see again in 1 Peter chapter 2 that the churches in Asia Minor were under intense persecution. They were being verbally maligned by those around them. So we don't do this to seek the approval of the world. We do it to reach the world for the glory of God. And Peter is a living embodiment as one who kept his conduct honorable despite being treated horribly. And not only did he do this by the power of the Spirit within him, but he accomplished his mission in the process to make known the God who saved him. And who could save others if they would believe in him? So in this way, Grace Church, if we commit to be salty, and we commit to let our light shine before others, it will be impossible for us to be overlooked or to blend in with the dark, broken world. I began with two stories of witnesses, one of a church who kept their conduct honorable before the world, and another who gave in to dishonor because of the pride and passions of the flesh. So I'll end with two questions as a church. What will our witness be in the coming days and months. And second, if Jesus said, this is who we are, do we trust him enough to lead us to live like it?
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the challenge that has been laid before us alongside the encouragement and the power to do so, that we need supernatural power to make your name known. And that is exactly what you've provided for us in the Holy Spirit, Lord. So I pray that we would trust you in this, that we would trust that you would lead us to live in the way that you have called us and empowered us to do. Father, may much fruit come from the ministry of Grace Church, not for our glory, but that they might see us and give you all the glory. It's your name we pray. Amen.